Amen. So we are continuing our study of the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. Last week we looked at the authority of Scripture, and uh, tonight we're going to continue thinking about the acceptance of Scripture, or why do we believe that this book contains or is the Word of God, and how do we hear the Word of God through dusty old pages that were written over the last uh, two to 3,000 years. And so we're going to be thinking tonight specifically about the, the role of the Spirit and how He works in and through the Word. Uh, to to communicate God's word to us, and so we'll begin this evening uh, in the Second London Baptist Confession, section uh, five, uh, section one, paragraph five is where we are. Section one, paragraph five, and we'll read this paragraph uh, and begin thinking about these issues. So, section one, paragraph five of the Second London Baptist Confession reads: The testimony of the Church of God may stir and persuade us to adopt a high and reverent respect for the Holy Scriptures. Moreover, the heavenliness of the contents, the power of the system of truth, the majesty of the style, the harmony of the parts, the central focus on giving all glory to God, the full revelation of the only way of salvation, and many other incomparable qualities and complete perfections all provide abundant evidence that the Scriptures are the Word of God. Even so, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Scriptures comes from the internal work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. And so again, this evening we're thinking about how do we know that this book is the very words of God? That when Moses and Jeremiah and Isaiah and the Chronicler and uh, Solomon and Matthew and James and Peter and Paul, when they were writing these words to specific peoples living at specific times in distant lands and in other languages, how do we know, or how do we, how, why are we convinced that these are the very words of God? And so our, our uh, confession this evening indicates that though there are many beauties and many excellencies and many facets of the word that serve to help convince us of this, our ultimate persuasion and assurance comes through the inner work of the Holy Spirit, or a doctrine called the testimonium in Latin. So if you have your handout from last week, we're on the back page on the testimonium of the Holy Spirit. Again, testimonium simply means the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. But we're thinking this evening about how the Spirit convinces us or works through the Word to convince us that this is the Word of God. And so we'll be, that's what we'll be thinking about this evening. So if, if, you're, if you have the handout there, we're in uh, point A, defining the testimonium. And so I write the witness of the indwelling Holy Spirit to the divine origin and veracity of the Scriptures, and to the reality of the individual's experience of salvation. So when we think about how the Spirit witnesses to our spirits, He witnesses to us and gives us assurance in two particular areas. One being the divine origin and truthfulness, or that's what veracity means, the truthfulness of the Scriptures. And the second being the reality of the individual's experience of salvation. We'll talk about both of these this evening. But we are talking about how the Spirit convinces us that this is the Word of God. So here a quote from Calvin. It says, Thus, the highest proof of Scripture derives in general from the fact that God in person speaks in it. For as God alone is a fit witness of Himself to His Word, so also the Word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the internal testimony of the Spirit. Why don't you think about that for just a minute? That the Word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the internal testimony of of the Spirit. Now, why is that so? Why is the Spirit's testimony necessary 
for us to believe and be convicted of the truth of God's Word, namely that this is the very Word of the living God. Why, why would that be necessary? Just brainstorm with me for a minute. I'm sorry? That's right. Because we are lost. Right? Our minds are darkened and our understanding is deformed and um, skewed. Right? Uh, morally. Right? And so on our own, just picking this book up and reading it would lead us, leave us more confused. And we can see that. There are any number of biblical scholars and, and of atheists that could pick this Bible up and begin to pick it apart. Right? It's not so much that they don't understand the question or the content. Rather, they have set themselves in judgment over it. There is a rejection of it before there is any under seek, uh, seeking to understand it. Right? There's a moral rejection, a refusal to submit to the Word. Right? So the problem is, the problem with our understanding of the Word is fundamentally moral. Because we are sinners and our understanding is darkened. Therefore, we must have the Spirit to convince us and persuade us of these truths, particularly that this is the voice of the living God. Any other reasons you can think of for why the Spirit would be necessary for our acceptance of the Scriptures? I'm sorry? Yes. That's right. And especially since the, we believe these authors were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so if they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, then it would make sense that the Spirit also aids, aids us in receiving their message. Right? Because these are His words. Right? Any other thoughts here, just initially? Okay. Right. That's right. That's right. And we'll, we'll talk more about illumination this evening. Illumination is technically is related to the testimonium, but does not technically fall under its purview. But the, in, in terms of our understanding of Scripture, we're going to see that these things are spiritually discerned. Right? A natural man cannot understand the things of God. We'll see that text here in just a minute in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So, <clears throat> yes, the illumination of the Spirit is, and we'll talk about more about this, the illumin that illumination is not downloaded content, right? It's not reading the Bible and going, okay, Lord, tell me what this means, right? That's, it's not, the, the illumination is not merely downloading meaning from on high, right? Illumination has more to do with convicting us of God's truth, convincing us of God's truth, and transforming us by God's truth, right? We are made in His image. We have with rational minds, with the ability to read and think and reason. So God expects us to read and think and reason in, over what He has revealed. But the Spirit comes along with our reasoning and our understanding and convinces us and convicts us and transforms us by the Word. So we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. But in order to think about the Spirit and the Word, I put some verses here, scriptural basis for the testimonium. And as I was preparing this week, I went back and added about half a dozen more. So if you've got your pen, you may want to jot these down. But we want to think about specifically the relationship between the Spirit and the Word. 
right? The spirit and the word, the this is a relationship that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? Right? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the, uh, the face of the earth was covered in darkness, the, spirit, the, the earth was formless and void, and the spirit hovered over the face of the deep. And then God said, let there be light. Right? The, the spirit hovering over the face of the deep indicates that it was the spirit who was active in accomplishing God's word. That it was through the word by the spirit that the world was made. Right? That, that these things were working in tandem even in Genesis chapter 1. Word and spirit, they operate together. In Exodus chapter 31 verse 18, we read that the tablets were written, uh, were written down and engraved by the finger of God. Now again, we talked last week how God doesn't have a finger. Right? But throughout the Old Testament, when we think about God's finger, about His arm, more often than not, what we're seeing is the activity or action of His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the aspect of His person by which He touches His creation. And so Moses understood that when he received the tablets from the Lord, that these were inspired, inscribed even, by the Holy Spirit on the tablets of stone. God's Word, the Ten Commandments, directly from the finger of God. Moreover, turn with me over to the book of Numbers. Chapter 11. More often than not, what we see in the Old Testament is that the Spirit operates in the gift of prophecy or in the ministry of prophecy in the Old Testament. This goes all the way back to the book of Numbers, chapter 11. I'm in Numbers, chapter 11. Pick it up in uh, verse 24 of the chapter. Um, Numbers, chapter 11, verse 24. So what's going on here is Moses is anointing the 70 elders to come alongside him and help him administrate and care for this people that he's led out of Egypt. He's only one man. He cannot accomplish a task by himself. And so God's going to take some of the spirit off of Moses and he's going to put it on these 70 elders. That's what's going on here. Numbers chapter 11, verse 24. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He brought 70 men from the elders of the people and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and spoke to him. He took some of the spirit that was on Moses and placed the spirit on the 70 elders. And as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they never did it again. Two men had remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad. The Spirit rested on them, and they were uh, among those listed but had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp. And the young man ran and reported it to Moses. Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, assisted to Moses since his youth, responded, Moses, my Lord, stop them. Look what Moses says right here. Moses asked him, verse 29, are you jealous on my account? Look what he says. If only all the Lord's, prophet, uh, the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord will place His Spirit on them. Then Moses returned to the camp along with the elders of Israel. So here's an interesting story, isn't it? That when the Spirit was placed upon these 70 elders, they began to prophesy, which means they began to proclaim the word of the Lord. And they didn't do it again after that. In fact, the two down in the camp that stayed there received the Spirit and began to prophesy. And look, and Moses' wish here, right, in verse 29, is really telling, if only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord placed His Spirit on them. Right? Why would Moses make that wish or make that declaration? Right? Why would Moses say, man, I wish everybody could have the Spirit and could prophesy the way I can, would have access? Why, why do you think Moses would say that? I'm sorry? Okay, it would take the burden off him, make his job a little easier perhaps. Right. 
The people would have direct and in, uh, intimate access to the ways and words of God. Instead of being reliant on Him as a mediator, they could, they could come directly. Does that sound like anything that you're aware of? Right? Over in the book of Joel, chapter 2, you know the passage. Joel chapter 2. Moses' wish is fulfilled. Right? Joel chapter 2. Verse 28, after this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, and blood and fire and columns of smoke. Sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Where is that passage fulfilled? Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. That's Peter's text for his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Explaining the phenomenon, but the Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost and people from all over, Jews that had uh, made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, who spoke many languages, they began to speak and hear the mighty deeds of God described and they understood. And Peter says this is what was fulfilled by the prophet Jeremiah. Right? Or by the prophet Joel, rather. Go with me over to the book of Jeremiah. This is tore through the Bible this evening. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is an important passage. Jeremiah chapter 31. thirty-one, Verse 31. The promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will be, not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them out of the hand, uh, by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Verse 33, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Look what he says. I will put my teaching, we could substitute the word word, I will put my word within them and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or brother, saying, Know the Lord. They will all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. And I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. This is a programmatic passage, a very important passage for understanding the work of Christ and our salvation. Jeremiah looks forward to a day when God says, I will write my word on their hearts. Now, the parallel passage for Jeremiah 31 is found in Ezekiel chapter 36. You don't have to turn there, but Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24 to 29. In that passage, Ezekiel says, uh, I'll take the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And he says, I'll put my spirit in them. You see the connection? Spirit and word. When, er when Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel were looking forward to the time of God's salvation and renewal, the establishment of the new covenant, they said, he's going to give us his spirit and he's going to write his word on our hearts. Spirit and word. They operate together. Now I'm in your, on your handout in point A, Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and 16. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Okay, What does it mean here when Paul says, The Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. What does that mean? 
Tells us what? Right. And that gives us what? Uh, assurance. Right. In other words, how do you know you're a child of God? Not because you walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. Not because you got wet in the baptistry. Not because you come to church every Sunday or say a prayer. But because the Spirit testifies internally, supra-rationally, and confirms that you are God's child. It is a supra-rational. Over and above my historical experience, I know beyond, that I know that I know that I know that I am God's child because the Spirit confirms that in me spiritually. This is the same work by which we would say that He operates according to the Word. That's why we call it the inner testimonium or the inner witness. John chapter 16, verse 12. Jesus says this, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit comes, He will guide you into all truth. What will He do? Guide us into all truth. For He will not speak on His own. He will speak whatever He hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify Me because He will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that He takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. Right? Jesus promises the Spirit will lead them into truth, convict them of sin, transform them. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Paul says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with fuel, what? Assurance. Right? How did the Thessalonians receive the gospel? Not because Paul was amazing, not because he was rhetorically refined, not because he was a smooth talker, not because he was able to do uh, amazing miracles, but because the Holy Spirit convicted and transformed through the Word. So Spirit and Word. Finally, 1 Corinthians 2. God has revealed this thing, these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For we know... For, excuse me, who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. Right? Paul seems very clear here. Spiritual things are discerned by spiritual people. Spiritual people are those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ, he goes on to say in this passage, because we have the Spirit of Christ indwelling here. So you see that the Spirit's primary role in regards to the Word is to give us conviction and assurance and understanding and transformation by the Word of God. Right? Yes, we can sit down and we can read these books and we can explore the history and we can parse the language and we can become experts on all of that. But there's a distinctive difference between, with, between a non-believer reading the Bible, even if they appreciate it and respect it and value it, and someone who is filled with the Spirit reading and studying the Bible. Right? Because they have the Spirit. That's what makes our reading of Scripture distinctively Christian. Because the Spirit speaks to us through it. And He, he transforms. So I hope you can see from these verses and that we've kind of surveyed quickly how the Spirit works in and through the Word. The Spirit does not work in isolation or apart in separation from the Word. Right? More often, what we see in the Scriptures is that Spirit and Word, they always work in tandem, together, in unison, for the same goal. That's why when someone says, oh, I have a revelation from the Spirit, they're dead wrong. Because the Spirit always operates in and through and by the Word. Any thoughts or questions about any of these 
scriptures we've looked at. So now you're probably thinking, well, if the reason I know that this is book is the Word of God is because the Spirit tells me, and this is God's words, then why should I care about Peter or Paul or Matthew or Moses or Isaiah or any of those guys? That doesn't matter. This is God's Word. Why does the history of the text matter? Why do the authorship of the text matter? Why when we read, for example, Ephesians, we just finished, why do we talk about the church at Ephesus and what they were going on and, and, and what Paul was trying to communicate to them? Why didn't we say, well, this is what the Spirit is telling me through Ephesians? You understand what I'm asking? Why do these human proofs or these human considerations of Scripture, why are they important and why are they valuable? It, I mean, we've talked about this. Why do we know this is the Word of God? We've said because it's, it testifies to Jesus. Because it is consistent with itself. We've said these things. right? We read them in, in the London Baptist Confection. right? The power of its truth, the majesty of its style, the harmony of its parts, the focus on giving all glory to God, the full revelation of salvation, many other incomparable qualities. It says it provides abundant evidence that the Scriptures are the Word of God. So, what do we do with these historical questions? Calvin himself, point C, letter A, Calvin himself recognized that so far as human reason goes, sufficiently firm proofs are at hand to establish the credibility of Scripture. If we just approach this book historically, look at its authorship, look at its dating, look at its miracles, look at its testimonies, look at its consistency, we could come to a pretty reasonable conclusion that this book is no just ordinary book, couldn't we? But the question is, is that enough to be convinced that this is the Word of God? Or, if hypothetically some evidence were, were uncovered that there was an inconsistency or an error, hypothetically, would that shake your confidence that this book is the Word of God? If, if your confidence is built on these human proofs, if one of those proofs is undone, then is your confidence undone? That is the question. Calvin says, as far as human reason goes, sufficiently firm proofs are at hand to establish the credibility of the Scripture. And you know, maybe you're aware that there are those who make a big, uh, a big to-do about the seeming contradictions and the apparent errors that are in the Bible. And I would submit to you that if we perceive an error in the Bible... And the problem is with us and not with the Bible. Right? As scholars continue to do more analysis and more historical research and more understanding, I believe that the, most of those errors can be resolved. Now, they may not be resolved in our day. They may not be resolved on this side of glory. But we understand that there is no fundamental inconsistencies or errors or contradictions in this book. The errors and the problems and the inconsistencies are with our understandings. Right? But... What do we do with human proofs or proofs of history and proofs of reason? How verse B, or point B, if this is true, how then should these evidence relate to the internal witness of the Spirit? Answer. They provide a reasonable probability where the Spirit provides trans or super rational certainty. Right? In other words, the, this evidence can give us an appreciation of the Bible and incline us to crediting its claims, but it cannot give us the kind of personal certitude that faith implies. So what we're saying is, yes, the human aspects of the text are important. 
Yes, we should learn about Paul, and we should learn about John, and we should learn about Isaiah, right? For example, I wrote an article yesterday on the, on the book of, uh, or just a short blog post on the book of Daniel, right? A lot of people that are in, this, in the scholarly guild would say that Daniel is hopelessly confused. They say it's written in the second century, that it's written by multiple authors, that there's no consistency, no unity at all. And I've tried to make the argument that there is a unity in Daniel's visions. Okay, and you can go read that if you want. If you're not, don't. That's fine too. But even if, even if you read it and say, well, I'm not fully convinced, right? the veracity and truthfulness of Daniel does not rest on my ability to prove its unity. Does that make sense? That the veracity and trustworthiness of Daniel rests in the testimony of God to His Word by His Spirit. That when we read Daniel and when we preach Daniel, we hear the voice of God in a super rational way. And we'll talk more about this in a minute. It's not subjective. It's not mystical. Right? But it is super rational because we hear the voice of God. So like I said, the history and the language and the evidence, all of those are important. And insofar as they aid our faith, they are valuable. But ultimately, when it comes to assurance on the Word of God, we must look to the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Is that fair? Point C says, this kind of certitude only comes from the testimony of the Spirit of God. Rather, this is Calvin 2, these human testimonies which exist to confirm Scripture will not be in vain if as secondary aids, secondary aids to our feebleness, they follow that cheap and high testimony. Right? So yes, we understand that in the process of interpretation, we look at the history, the context, all of that business. And that's important. But ultimately, the reason the Bible transforms is because it is the Word of God. Any thoughts, comments, or questions about any of that? All right, so let me give you two cautions when we think about the testimony of the Spirit. The first one I mentioned before, that the inner witness of the Spirit is not downloaded content. Right? What this does not mean is that I can determine for myself what the canon is. Like, oh, by mystical revelation, I believe that uh, Hermes is now Scripture. Right? I don't get to determine that. In other words, the, 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 the Spirit does not download content in that way. Right? It gives us assurance and confidence, but it is not subjective. You don't get to determine your own Bible because you like these books more than these books, or because you hear the word of the voice of God in this book and not this book. Right? Now, I don't know if you've ever sat down and tried to read Chronicles. First nine chapters of Chronicles are all genealogies. So you may be reading through that and you're like, I do not hear the voice of God in these chapters. Right? I don't know what's going on here with all these begots, but this clearly is not from God. Right? Wrong. God put that there for a purpose. It has value. It is important. It is inspired. And Paul says it's trustworthy and profitable for reproof and correction. Even the genealogies. Because it's the Word of God. Right? So whether or not you specifically hear the voice of God in a particular text of Scripture is not the question. Right? We don't get to just determine, oh, I feel like this is the Word of God today. Right? That's not the point. We'll talk more about that in just a minute as a why. Secondly, it is not subjective. Right here, I put this in, verse, in point A. The testimonium, which is personal and private, is yet the work of the Spirit in the common life of the church. It is personal to the core, but it is not individualistic. Let me say that again. It is personal, it is experiential, but it is not individualistic. It occurs unseen in the heart, but it drives the Christian into the fellowship of the visible local church. So what we are not saying here is that 
all I need is the Bible and the Spirit. That's all I need. I got my Bible and I'm good. That's not what we're saying here. Because if you are filled with the Spirit, then the Spirit will, in, it will directly drive you into the community of the Spirit, which is the church. And so our experience of our experience of the Spirit, though it is personal, we submit it to the collective witness of the church. This is where the historical witness of the church comes alongside and either confirms or challenges what we believe. We are not our fi the final arbiters of truth. The Scriptures are the final arbiter of truth. And the Scriptures point us to the wisdom of the collective body of Christ, both our, here in this place and also historically. A few verses. Ephesians chapter, four, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is above all and through all and in all. One faith, one spirit. Is the spirit today any different from the spirit that Paul had? Nope. Is the spirit today any spirit different than the spirit that Calvin had, or Luther had, or Zwingli had? No. Right? The spirit has worked through the history of the church, through gifted teachers and pastors, as his gift to the church, which is in Ephesians chapter 4, right? to give us a, a, a confidence or a body of faith by which we test ourselves against. That's called tradition. Right? It's not the final authority, but it is a valuable norm that, by which we learn and, and submit to. So <clears throat> the Spirit, though He is filling each one of us, He, he pulls us together. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Now you can see the very next one, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Wait a minute, Paul. All right, is the Spirit plural? Like we are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Or am I, me, my body, the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you see what Paul's saying here? It would seem like Paul is contradicting himself, doesn't it? But he isn't. In 1 Corinthians 3, the emphasis is on the collective unity of the church filled by the Spirit. That we together are the temple of God's presence. That's also repeated in Ephesians chapter 2. We just finished that book. But yes, you individually are also filled with the Holy Spirit, and your body is His temple. It's what it says in chapter 6. That's why we do not defile His temple. That's why we pursue practical holiness. So the point here is that the Spirit is both personal and corporate. Right? He is in me, but He is also in us. And there is value in the collective wisdom, the collective testimony of the Spirit in us. That's the voice of the church. That's why it's called the pillar of truth in the book of Jude. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. You can see how it would be confusing, right? If you said, well, I don't, I don't think Ecclesiastes is the Word of God, but I really love Psalms. And I said, no, 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 I think Ecclesiastes really is the Word of God, but those Psalms are just too confusing for me. You can see how that would be confusing, wouldn't it? Yeah, some people over here who think this is the Word, and some people over here who think this is the Word, and that's the recipe for confusion. Right? Collectively, we understand that God is not a God of disorder or confusion, but of peace. He draws us together. He unites us in the faith by His Spirit. That's also part of the testimonium. Right? So, what are your thoughts? What do you think about this topic of the Spirit and the Word and how the Spirit gives us the assurance 
of the of that these are the word this is the word of God. How does that assurance come to us in a practical way? What do you think? How do I know that this is the Spirit's testimony in me? Is it something I like have a warm fuzzy feeling about, or like like what does that look like for you? Yeah. Um, how do I recognize the internal witness of the Spirit in my life? Right. Am I dependent on uh, high warm fuzzies or high spiritual experiences? Or is, how, just how do I recognize this? How do I discern it? Is, it? is that clear? What do you think? Isn't that interesting? Right? That there is great peace in submission to the truth as it has been testified and proven. But there's more anxiety and more uncertainty when I try to determine for myself what is truth. Isn't that an interesting dynamic? You would think that, oh, I've decided for myself this is truth and I'm confident in it. But our independent determination of truth do not bring us the kind of security, does it? It only leaves us with more questions. It only leaves us with more Sunday. Like a, like a, like a man out on an island standing by himself, blown in the wind, right? stronger together. So yes, absolutely, the peace that comes through accepting and joining with the historic confession of God's church. What else? How else do you, how, how do you know? Isn't that amazing? Like It's not just a matter of, yes, I want to read this book and I want to learn about its history and facts and I want to learn about what it teaches about God, but there is an affection. There is a joy. There is a satisfaction that is unexplainable. I'm glad you said that. It's unexplainable. That when I sit down and, and, and dwell and abide and meditate and reflect on this Word, there's a nourishing of the soul that happens. It's not just here, but it's here. And, and again, like I said, it's hard to put in words. Right? But throughout the history of the church, time and again, the saints of God have testified to this reality. That it's through the Word that we find our souls rest by the Spirit. What do you do when you're not feeling that, Melissa? <laughs> Good answer. Right? We've talked about it. Sometimes you don't feel like picking this book up. Oh, today I'm in the book of Leviticus, chapter 22. I really don't feel like reading Leviticus today. Is Leviticus the Word of God? Yes, that my experience of the Word of God is not necessarily dependent on my feelings. Rather, I need to go back and submit to it again, go back and reflect on it again, go back and study it again, study it with others, re re meditate, reflect, go back again. Right? The prayer of illumination that we have every Sunday, right? prayer and the Word go together. Right? Have you ever just stopped and prayed, Lord, I'm having some difficulty understanding this. Help me to understand it. Again, that doesn't mean he's going to give me some kind of mystical download. That's Gnosticism. Right? Gnostic says, Gnosticism is, is a heresy that's built on the idea of gnosis or mystical knowledge. Right? It says that um, apart from the word, God's just going to reveal to me and give me this secret knowledge. That's mysticism. That's Gnosticism. That's so, so often how people approach their reading of the Bible, isn't it? So yes, I should pray. Yes, I should invite the Spirit into my study, but I should still study. Just pick up a book, ask a teacher, do some research, read a longer passage, 
Do some cross-referencing. Whatever it takes to help to wrestle with the passage. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I don't know, for, for me, you know, sometimes, especially in the academic context, it's easy to sit down and read this book and it just be a purely academic exercise, right? And I have to force myself to think about what it means to study spiritually, right? And that's something I've, I continue to be challenged, to challenge myself with. Like, even though I'm writing this paper or doing this research, how is this helping me grow into the image of Christ, right? Every time you sit down to read the Bible, you should ask yourself that. How is this helping me grow into the image of Christ, even though this is the genealogies or the Leviticus or the whoever's, right? How is, what is this teaching me about God, about Christ, about myself? Right? Listening to the voice of the Spirit. Listening to the Scriptures. What else? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But when I am assured of my salvation or have, like they've said, joy or peace, it's because I've gone back to the word and the word right. and the spirit together that have brought me the assurance right. that brings me to that place of assurance in my salvation. Right. The uh, the joy. When everything's just crashing around us, there's still an unexplainable joy I have. And mm-hmm. that, the text and the spirit yeah. revealed that to me. Right? And that doesn't come with warm fuzzies, it just comes yeah. with the gentleness yeah. and a peace. And, you know, just as Proverbs says, it surpasses all understanding. That's right. You know, the outside world doesn't understand what a believer understands when they, when the spirit is illuminating the text yeah. and the tour. And, and yeah. Right. Yep. So, as a, as a Christian, you, if you're battling this, uh, not assured of anything, if you're mm-hmm. in chaos, go to the Word. Yeah. And even in the Word, you can still have peace, but also be convicted. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's times I'm like, man, I'm in peace, but I know I need to get this right before yeah. I feel the heavy hand of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Some of y'all are more paying attention. Like, did he say that? Really? No. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I just think sometimes those warm fuzzies come from more self rather than God. Self, self rather than yeah. And let's be clear we're not saying that emotions are bad. Your reading of Scripture, if done with the Spirit, will be experiential and will be full of emotions, both positive emotions of celebration, joy, hope, encouragement, comfort, peace, and also, again, yes, the, the anguish over pain and sin and sorrow and tragedy and, and lament and mourning and all of these things. So, yes, your experience of Scripture is emotional because you are emotional. God made you an emotional being, and those are good. But that doesn't mean that my emotion is not the measure of my success in the Word. Does that make sense? 
God is the God of emotion. He brings consolation, they say. Sometimes He leads us through the dark night of the soul. The emotions wax and wane. But the point, point, the point here is the discipline of going back to the Word regularly, feeding myself on the Word, and trusting God to lead me down along the path as He sees fit. Yes. Feel a certain way, or are we supposed to feel edified? Hurt? That's right. You know, our emotions can lie to us. Yeah, they can be self-seeking. But when the word is preached, when the word is being sung, mm -hmm. the word is being prayed. As you said again, and I said again, repeated you, the word is here together. Yeah. We leave refreshed. That's right. Convicted, hurt all the things, yeah. but we don't let our emotions necessarily dictate how right. worship was right. today. And so let's ask that question. When Stephen steps up to this pulpit on Sunday to preach, or I step up, or Craig, or Adam, how do you listen to us, but also listen to the Spirit? How do you cultivate the habits of being a spiritual listener? Right? Not just putting it on autopilot, not just uh, you know being distracted by all the things, but how do you cultivate an ear to both what's being said and what the Spirit is saying? Is that, how, how do we cultivate spiritual listening? in the act of preaching, for example. How do we do that? Note-taking helps. Absolutely. Absolutely. As you're journaling, as you're taking notes, as you're marking the outline of the Spirit, you can make an observation or some kind of interaction of, oh, I did my, this week I did this, and that reminds me of that, or what have you. Right. So that helps you f listen to the Spirit and what He might be saying to you as you process. Right? How else? How else do we become spiritual listeners to the word? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when when do you do that and how do you do that? How do you prepare yourself for Sunday morning worship to hear from the word? Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. So I think what you said is it, that preparation for Sunday starts on Monday, right? And it's the discipline of, of submitting to His Word, of seeking His way, of prayer and reading and preparation throughout the week, right? So that by the time I arrive on Sunday morning, I'm in, I'm in those treads, so to speak. Right? It's not something I'm just trying to turn on when I get here. Oh, I walked through the door. Let me turn on my spiritual ears. Right? But it's training our ears day in and day out right? through the Word, through prayer, through meditation, through those disciplines to hear His voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, I think we could do it even better. We could probably put out the actual text. We'll be 
Yeah, and I, I encourage that in my Sunday school class. I mean, we have a, a chapter a week we're reading, and I want people to read that and be ready to discuss, right? Because it's the, the communal aspect of the, is, of the growing and the discussing and the questioning and the feedback mutually, that also helps me, right? It helps us each other, right? It's not about Philip having all the answers or Stephen having all the answers, but together, because we're all filled by His Spirit, we feed each other. We sharpen each other. So when we come having prepared ourselves, then we're able to minister to one another more effectively. Yeah. This Sunday we're preaching on Third John, so Third John. John. That's right. So, any other thoughts before we conclude this evening? I think that's that's the point I would like to leave us with after this lesson is namely that we can have ultimate and complete assurance that God has spoken, that he has revealed his will, that he has opened the way for us to know him and to be transformed in his image. We can know that convictionally. Right? Our faith doesn't, as you said, doesn't rest on proofs or evidence or history, though it rests on the historical fact of Jesus and his resurrection, but it rests on Christ. Like you said, God does not change. And so we can stand up with this book, no matter how many people question it and challenge it and attack it and try to, try to uh, minimize it or diminish it. We can hold this book up and we can say, thus says the Lord, this is the word of God, and I'm not ashamed. Rather, I joy that this is God's word right? because I know because the Spirit speaks to me through it, and that's encouraging. That's assurance. That's confidence. I think that's the big idea of this lesson this evening. So. Any final thoughts of anything we've considered? All right. Well, let's close in a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we are so thankful for your grace. For your grace in revealing to yourself to us in a way that we could even understand. For you are mysterious and incomprehensible and infinite and more than our finite minds could ever begin to understand. But you have 
condescended and humbled yourself so that we could even know you. So we are humbled and we are thankful for your goodness and your grace by which you invite us to know you. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you've promised to write your word on our hearts to cause us to keep your uh, commandments and to walk in conformity to your image. Thank you that you are continuing to work on all of us each day, shaving off the rough, rough edges, right? cutting out the cancers and making us more like Jesus. Help us to submit to your work in that and to grow in likeness because of it. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.